This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, welcome everybody. We are kicking off what believers, followers of Jesus Christ all over the world will call Holy Week. And today that starts with Palm Sunday. If you roll through this week, you're familiar with kind of where it tracks to. We're going to track to uh, Monday, Thursday, which some of you may have grown up actually going to church to celebrate communion on Thursday, which is the, this is kind of coincides with Passover. And so Jesus celebrated the Passover, the Lord's Supper with his friends and, and then Good Friday, right? So Good Friday being the, the day that we actually roll into this week to remember the cross of Jesus for us. Today, we're actually going to do that together by, um, by actually meeting at our downtown campus for 4, 5.30, and 7. Uh, we have a link right here. We ask you to go on, just reserve tickets for that, um, because if you can do that, that lets us know that you're coming, and then at the same time, then we can make sure that our kids, workers, and everybody is prepared for that. just want to make sure that all of that is taken care of you for Good Friday, and then for um, Easter, we will be same schedule here, 9 and then 10.30 in downtown. We'll be at 7.30, adding a time at our downtown campus, 7.30 and then 10 a.m., which is their normal time. It's an important time to invite people to come to church. You know, maybe there might not be a moment throughout the year culturally that people are more aware of their need to be in church than around Easter, and recently there was a study done. They asked, are you planning on attending an Easter service? And what they found was that 40% of the people that they asked were planning on attending an Easter service. Now, that's tough for many of us that are in the room to believe because we think, well, it's just people like me. They're going to go to church. And a lot of us in our kind of common culture, common tribe that we have, our relationships, most people go to church. But it's important to understand that most people are not. As a matter, let's contextualize that. Look at this next slide. Do we have that up there? Albemarle has around 16,000 residents. That means... Based on the statistics, 6,400 people will likely be in church, but 9,600 people are not currently, right now, planning on attending church as it is. But then in this study, they asked, would you attend an Easter service if you were invited by someone? Would you attend? You know what they found? Is that out of those who said no, 80% they would attend on Easter if they were invited, 80% said that they would. So let's contextualize that again to us. 80% said that they would return. So out of the 96, next slide, please. Out of the 9,600 people not planning on attending church this Easter, that means 7,680 people would attend if somebody would invite them to come to church. This is why this cultural moment is so important for us to actually engage it and invite people to be here, to be in this environment with us. People we love for, we, we care about them, we, we want the best for them, we've built a relationship with them. It's so important to engage them in this moment 
through an invitation. So let's talk about what that looks like, a good invitation. All right, a good invitation is being able to leverage the influence I have in people's lives through social media. Right? And this is maybe the most common way that people engage culturally right now in inviting others to come to church with them. Hey, let me just post something. I'm going to invite, I'm going to share something. I'm going to post a little graphic. Come to church with me. We meet at, this is where we're going. The problem with social media is that there's a shelf life on every post that you put out there. Likely, if I don't log on within about 30 minutes of the time that you made a social media post, I'm not going to see it. Okay? So there's a shelf life to it. So this is a good invitation, and we love to use hashtags around Easter because it lets all of our posts kind of get synced together. You can click on it, makes it searchable. People will see the other people who have posted using that hashtag. So the hashtag this year is Easter at Vortex 2022. But let's talk about what a great invitation looks like. A great invitation is personal in nature. It's a text or a call to somebody you love. There are people that you love that need to be invited into the space with you. So it's a text. It's a call. Uh, I'm reaching out. I just want to invite you again. You know, maybe you've reached out before. I know you're not. And there's a group that I like to call the three knots, which are great people to, to think about inviting to join you at church. Can I just go through that? I've been through this before, but I just think it's always helpful to be refreshed. The three knots. These are people, the first ones, that they were not expecting that. Maybe they lost a job. Maybe they found out from a landlord that they were going to lose their house, that a landlord's selling it, and they're going to lose the place. They just were, they're encountering something in their life that they were not expecting. Then there are people that things are not going well for them. Things are not going well. They might be sick, dealing with a chronic illness. They, they might be going through a tough time in their marriage. They, they might be, there's all kinds of things. Maybe you, they're, they're going through a tough time personally. Things are not going well for them. And then the biggest target is this last one. They are not in church. They are not in in church. The people who are not attending church in our lives are phenomenal targets for us to, in this season, in this moment, for us to target with an invitation. The reason that it's so effective is because many of them will say yes. Statistically, they're just waiting for somebody to reach out and say, I love you. And so I want to encourage you to do number three. This is really what makes a great invitation. Host somebody for a service. Last year, we had a, a young boy. He was, he was a kindergartner. And he decided that he, his teacher, he knew she wasn't going to church anywhere. She was new to our area. And so he started inviting her and inviting her. And then he took the cards that we hand out. And every week, he'd come in and hand her a card and hand her a card and hand her a card. And finally, she agreed that she'd come to church last year. And she came to church. And they met her outside in the parking lot. And they walked her in to get some coffee. And they came in. And they sat down together. And that young woman ended up giving her life to Jesus in one of our services, all because somebody was willing to invite. 
I want to remind you that it, it takes about seven to ten times before you, you get somebody who agrees. So, so about two or three times in, most of us want to give up because we feel like we've been rejected. But, but keep inviting. It's important. There's a lot that God can do through that invitation. That's why we give you those cards. We're going to hand that to you on your way out. It's just a tangible reminder of the invitation that you've given. Now today we're going to look at Palm Sunday which is the beginning. It's the beginning of the Holy Week. It's the start of this movement that Jesus has towards his destiny of the cross. And it begins in Luke chapter 19, Matthew 21, and John 12. This is where the Bible tells this story. And so I'm going to kind of use perspectives from all throughout that. Matthew 21, verse 1, says, As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two of them ahead. Now in the next verse, Go into the village over there, he said, and as soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside him. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing... Just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was coming out tomorrow morning to go get in my car and come to work, and I walked out, and I looked, and there were two guys trying to get in my truck, and they looked at me, and they said, yeah, we're going to take this truck. The Lord needs it. I'd probably be, I don't know if I'd be like, hey, you know, it kind of lets you see maybe this guy already knew Jesus and had talked to him and Jesus said, you know what, one day I'm going to need that donkey, I'm going to need its colt. And if a couple guys show up here to take it, just know that I need it. I need it. The Lord needs it. In John chapter 12, John uniquely talks about this and he says, Jesus found a young donkey and rode on, he actually, Jesus didn't ride on the donkey, he rode on the colt of the donkey, the younger one. Most scholars say the reason that both of them were needed was that one that was that young was not broken and would need his mom to be there to guide him through, to keep him from getting upset. He wrote on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. In the next verse, John includes this really important detail. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was the fulfillment of prophecy. There are a lot of things that will happen in your life that you will not understand it at the time. There are things that will happen that will, will feel confusing and disparaging. And when you get through it and you get to the other side of it, you'll look back and you go, oh, it makes sense now. That's what happened. But after Jesus had entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. This was actually a prophecy showing that Jesus was king. So back to Matthew 28 or 21 verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. This is Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And then others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is so important to see that Jesus is not being received as some guy. He's being received as a king as an honored guest is coming into Jerusalem. They're putting down their clothes. Jesus, you're so important. You shouldn't walk on the road. Jesus, let me put these branches. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. Let me put these branches down. It's being heralded as a king in Matthew 21 verse 9 says this, Jesus was in the center of the procession. There's some things about 
Palm Sunday that are broken, and there are some things that are beautiful. This is one of those. I want Jesus to be at the center of your life. Everything, I want him to be at the center of your finances, the center of your marriage, the center of your family, the center of your friendships. I want Jesus to be, and in this moment, as this Jesus was at the center of the procession, and the people were all around him shouting, praise God for the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. Son of David, this is actually, this is powerful. This is a connection to this potential that he might be the Messiah. He's come out of the house of David. This is the Old Testament prophesying that, that the Messiah would come out of the house of David. And so there's this practical reality that he is a son of David, but there's messianic implications in that. So in Luke 19, the Luke records that this happened. Some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like this. And he replied, If they keep quiet, the stones along the road will burst into cheers. John then records why there are so many people there in verses 17 and 18. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were there telling others about him. Now, not too long before this, Jesus' friend Lazarus had died, and as he kind of enters this, he, he, he kind of entered that moment with this auspicious kind of overlay of, of the depression of the loss of a friend, but he goes to the tomb and he calls to Lazarus. Lazarus walks out of the tomb tomb alive. And so John's saying that there were a lot of people in the crowd that had heard about that. And that's the reason many went out to meet him because they had heard about this miraculous sign. So as Matthew 21 closes up the narrative in verses 10 and 11, it says that the entire city in Jerusalem was in an uproar as Jesus entered. Who is this? They asked. And the crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet the, of Nazareth in Galilee. I want you to, they're asking this question, who is this man? And for the next week, as we go through what, what is historically understood as Holy Week, the question for you is, who is this man? Who is this Jesus? Notice the names that were given to Jesus in this story as he enters Jerusalem. Next slide. Number one, religious leaders called him a prophet. They called him a prophet. Religious leaders called him a teacher, okay? They called him a teacher. This is literally the lowest reduction for the religious leaders that they could have pronounced upon Jesus. He's, a, he's not, he's, he's just a teacher. He gets crowds together. People seem to listen to him. Teacher. Why don't you rebuke your followers? They're calling you the son of David. The crowds called him a prophet. And this would have been in the line of the prophets of Elijah and Elisha, a prophet who speaks the words of God, the prophetic gift, but they also perform miracles, display the power of God. Jesus had done a lot of things. They had seen it. So number three, the spectators crowded together to see the miracle worker. This is the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead. This is the guy who caused the blind to see. 
And people around cheered him as the son of David. Well, there has to be something unique and different. Didn't he come from the house of David? Isn't that practically who he was? Isn't that why his mom and dad had to go to Bethlehem? Because that's where his family is from? John records that the scriptures, when they were kind of excavated to talk about this moment, the scriptures called him king. Oh, Jerusalem, here comes your king riding on the colt of a donkey. But Jesus only called him one, himself one name in this whole story. He called himself Lord. Jesus called himself Lord. So today... All throughout this week, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions, okay? And, and the big question for today is, how do you know him? How do you know him? There were people in the crowd, when, when they were described, there were a lot of people in the crowd who thought they knew Jesus. They thought they knew who he was. Some, some people, the religious leaders, he's just a teacher. Some people, he's a prophet. Some people, he's a miracle worker. Now, if you're tracking with us and where we've been, teacher, Prophet, miracle worker, those are all spiritual gifts. And last week we learned that what? The same Spirit gives all the gifts. Jesus had at his disposal at all moments all the gifts of the Spirit. This was not, it was easy to look at him and see what he does and at the same time not know who he is. So the first question is, do you only know God by what he has done? Do you only know God by what he has done? Some of us would say, yeah, I mean, I'm a Christian. I mean, the big, in the big picture kind of thing, I believe that God created the world. Yes, I believe, I believe the Bible's mostly true. I don't read it. I don't listen to it. Doesn't really inform my life, but I, I believe that's I believe that God does miracles. Maybe in my own life, I might be able to say, I have seen God do something in my life. I remember that time when we couldn't afford to pay that bill. And then there was that God supernaturally provided for me to pay that bill. Yeah, I remember that time. We were kind of wrestling in our marriage and it wasn't going real well. And we went to church and we wrote a few checks. And then all of a sudden, things seemed like they started getting better. God has done something maybe even in your life. And the thing is, is that you can try to know somebody from just a distance looking at them and watching what they do. But you got to ask the question, how did Jesus get to know the people in his life? It's a real simple answer. How did Jesus get to know the people in his life? He invited them to walk with him. Come walk with me. Matthew 4, Jesus comes in to address a few fishermen. And he comes up to them and he says, come follow me. And I will send you out to fish for people. What you've been doing with your life has been all about this stuff right here. You've been casting nets and going out in boats and you've been spending nights and mornings and days fishing, but I'm going to change the object of your life. You're no longer going to work with fish. You're going to work with people where this was your place, nets and boats. You're going to get out of the boat. You're going to have a different kind of life. And look at what happened. At once they left their nets 
and they followed him. There's some implications to this invitation. Let me just point some of those out. This invitation is three things that I want to show you today that are implied about us. That number one, if we're going to follow Jesus, you're not staying in the same place. God's not going to leave you the same. You're not going to have the same perspectives, the same thoughts, the same desires, the same dreams. You're not staying in the same place. Number two, the second implication is you're not leading. You're not in charge. Come follow me means you surrender control, you surrender leadership, and you say, God, now you're in the lead. I'm not leading. And number three, and this is something that's missed a lot in our cultural representation of Christianity, that you need to be close to God. You need to be close. God's not saying just look at what I'm doing. He's saying, no, come, be close. Walk with me. Follow me. Get to know me. Let's build a relationship. And the problem with only knowing God by what he's done by what he's done. The problem with that, next slide, is that you can know a lot about God without being close to him. You can know, there's some of us that we can talk Bible verses, we can talk church, we can talk mission trips, we can talk a lot about God, but you're not living right now in a way where your life is literally close to him. It's not, I'm laying my life down, my will down, I'm getting up and going after God. It's really right now, I know a lot about him but I'm not close to him. John, John records this moment in John 10. Look at this. The Jews surrounded Jesus and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us. Just tell us plainly. Tell us plenty. And look at what Je Jesus said, I did tell you. And you didn't believe. Now, how did he tell them? Look at what he says here. so important. The works that I do in my Father's name test about, testify about me, but you don't believe. The works I do in my... He's saying, listen, you've been living with me. You've watched what I've done. You haven't even seen it or interpreted it or understood it the way that it's all been shown to you. This is why we've got to have some humility when it comes to the way that we approach God. They are absolutely confused. And Jesus is saying, I've made it clear for you. All you know is the stuff you've seen, but you haven't looked at who I am and the testimony that comes out of what you've seen. You can know a lot about God without knowing God. And then some in the crowd yelled out, Son of David, this very practical and real statement about who he was, but it's also at the same time, it has messianic implications. It, it got the religious leaders a little upset. Rebuke that man. Rebuke that woman. They shouldn't be saying that. And then as the disciples reflected over the scriptures, they saw the, the messianic prophecy that called Jesus riding on the colt of a donkey, called him king. How do you know God? Number two, do you only know God by the testimony of others? Do you only know God by the testimony of others? 
It's never been personal for you. Well, my mama talked about that a lot. Yeah, my, my dad, my dad, he loved Jesus. I've got this friend over here. Oh, I go to that church. In Stanley County, this has happened so many times to me. Let's just bring it down to where we live. Sit down and talk to somebody. Hey, man, where do you go to church? Tell me about your relationship with Jesus. And here's the answer you get. My granddad was a Baptist preacher. Well, you want to know what? Can I just say this? If that's what you're sowing as your testimony, right now I've got three kids between five and ten, I don't ever want their testimony to be my dad was a preacher. I don't want my grandkids decades from now for their testimony to be, well, my grandfather was a preacher. I want them to have something that's personal. At some point in our lives, our faith needs to become personal. It needs to become something that matters to me. It's got a transition from where my family went, from what the traditions of our family, and it's got to become something that's personal for me. It's got to matter to me. It's got to be something that I'm pursuing. Because here, if your faith is just simply family tradition, it's going to eventually fade and die. If it's not personal, you see this in the Old Testament. Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage, towards the promised land. They get towards the promised land, send out 12 spies. Go see if we can take this land. They just actually know they can. Out of numbers, they figured out how big and bad their army is. And so now there should be no question, but they send them out, and now 10 of them come back. We can't do it. We're scared. There's giants in the land. They have fortified cities. We'll never be able to take it. Two, two young men, Joshua and Caleb, stand up and go, we can do it. Our, they're big, that's true, but our God is bigger than them. And the people side with the 10 who were afraid. The people side with the 10 who don't believe that God is bigger. And God decides to punish them for a whole generation. You will wander around while you die off. You will not enter into my promises. And Moses leads them through that. And Moses allows in his own life and in his own heart, he allows disobedience to live. So much so, it's so mild in our temperament. It's so mild in what we would say. But God says, Moses, because you allowed that disobedience to be a part of your leadership, you will not enter into my promise. So the, the mantle of leadership is transferred from Moses to Joshua. And Joshua gets his marching orders from God. And they march across the Jordan River. And they take the cities. And they take, and all of the, God's just being faithful and faithful. And Joshua looks into the heart of God and says, I know you gave me 10 things to do, but I'm only going to do five of them because I don't want to do the last five. What was there in a little bit with Moses is now there a lot in Joshua. And Judges chapter 2 records what happens after the days of Joshua. Look at this. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, in other words, they died away, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. What one generation permits the next generation normalizes. I just want to say this as parents, 
It is not easy when your kids get older to motivate them to always get up and come with you to church. But if you make it permissible for them to dodge out because they don't feel like coming, I want you to understand, don't be too surprised in a few decades when they're not in church because what one generation permits, the next generation normalizes. And it ain't just about families. For some of us, the only way we've ever connected with God is because we got a a friend who has a relationship with God. Or we belong to a community that, that brings us and ushers us into the presence of God. I don't want all that you know about God to be concentrated to a Sunday morning worship experience. I'm just going to say this over you because some of y'all need to hear it for yourselves. You can know God personally. What you read about in the Bible is not just history. It's for you. It's for your life. It's for this moment. God wants something for you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to know him, not just because of what you've seen him do in the distance. He wants you to know him, not just because your mama talked about him or your friend. God wants you to know him personally. So let me ask you this question. Do you know God by the relationship that you have with him? Do you know God by the, do you have a personal relationship with God? Is your faith more than something that you've read about or heard about? Is your faith something that's not just, I heard my mama talk about it and my grandparents and and you know what, I got this, they, they really encourage me when I'm feeling down. Is it personal? Is it personal? Do you know God personally? Do you know God personally? Jesus in John 17 said, this is the way to have eternal life. He's praying to the Father to know you, to know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ the one that you sent to earth. That's what it means to have eternal life, to know God. And this know, this is not just an intellectual thing. In the Bible, the term know is an experiential thing. I know about, but I experience it. It's a personal experience. Jonathan Edwards famously said one time, you might believe that honey is sweet, Because you got a lot of people around you that have told you that honey is sweet and you trust their testimony. You might have a lot of people that you've even witnessed eating some toast with some honey on it and you look at them and you go, they really seem to enjoy that honey. But have you ever tasted for yourself to know that it is sweet? Did you know that that's the invitation of the Bible? To taste and see that the Lord is good. So can we just talk about what it means to have a personal relationship with God? How do I know God? How do I come to know him? How do I build that relationship? Well, in every healthy relationship, we got to understand a few things. And number one, we must know who we are, specifically in that relationship. I just say, let me give you an example. If you don't know who you are at work, 
You might not have a healthy relationship with your coworkers. If you walk in there tomorrow and you think you're the boss, but you're not really the boss, you're probably not going to have a healthy relationship with your coworkers. We got to know who we are. And the first thing that I just want to say this over you, we are God's creation. God made you. In Ephesians, the Bible says that you are God's masterpiece. That he looks over you and calls his creation good. And not only does he think you're good, but he has designed good things to happen out of you. Now that doesn't mean we're necessarily good people, but the way that God made us is good. God is a good God. He doesn't make mistakes. You might be looking at yourself and saying, but I'm not like this and I'm not like that and I'm kind of quirky over here and I'm not, I I struggle. God knows who you are. We are God's creation, but there's something else that's true about every person in this room. We are sinners. We are people who have made mistakes. We have blown it. We just generally speaking, our brokenness kind of sends us on a journey where we don't land on getting it right. We innately get it wrong. This is why if you've ever had kids, you know, you got to teach them to get it right because they're going to get it wrong on their own, right? We're innately broken. We are sinners. And because of that, We're a lot like the people in the crowd. We are confused. I'm created in the image of God. I'm created in a powerful way like God. God made me in a good way. I am his masterpiece. But out of my sin, I've broken my perspective. I don't understand things as clearly as I'd like to. I'm confused. If you need any evidence that you are confused... There's something in your life right now that about two or three years ago, you felt real certain that you understood it and you've changed your mind, which means that there's something in your life right now you feel real certain about that all it's going to take is a few more years for you to see how confused you are about it right now. We are confused. We got to know who we are. But then we, number two, we must know who God is. We must know who God is. Who is God? You know what the Bible tells us about God is love. That he is love encapsulated, true, honest, authentic love. That's who God is. We can try to love, we can try to be loving, but the way we learn to love is by looking at God. God is love. He's a God of justice which means that the wrongs in our world, God is working to make them right. He's a just God and he's a good God. Some of y'all been through some hard things this past year. Some of those hard things you made for yourself, some of those hard things life doing. It's easy when life is not going the way you thought it would to doubt the goodness of God. I just want to say it to you. No matter our circumstance, God is in fact good. And if you're confused about who God is, God is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
Colossians chapter 1 says that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. That in Jesus, we see who God is. I've got to know who I am. I've got to know who God is if I'm going to have a relationship with him. And then number three, we need to know what we need to do. I, I just, I got to know it. Tell me what I need to do to have this relationship with God. And the first thing that you need to do if you're going to have a relationship with God is you've got to repent. The Bible uses repentance as the hinge of our relationship with God. I've got to admit that I have violated God's law. I have not done my life God's way. And in doing so, I've worshipped the wrong thing. I've worshipped people. I've worshipped relationships. I've worshipped possessions. I've, I've, and worshipping means I've given it my attention and adoration. And my life has been lived in response to it. And I've been my own master. In other words, I've decided what's right. I've decided what's good. We've got to repent for that. And then we need to believe. We need to believe in the sufficiency of Jesus. We've got to transfer from ourselves our trust. It's not about, not about what I understand or how good I am or how strong I can be. It all moves to Jesus. I transfer my trust to him. My eternity is held secure by you, Jesus, not by me. My life is held in your hands. My moments, they're, they're all in you. Jesus, it's all about you. I, I don't care. I give you permission to mess up my politics. I give you permission to mess up where I'm going. God, just all, you have my dreams, my desires, my, all of it, God. I just give it all to you. We need to repent. Because in many ways, we've lived like our own God. And we need to believe. We need to believe, right? We need to believe in a God that's bigger than us. That's smarter than us. You need to have a God that you disagree with on some things. God, I don't even know how that works. Forgive my enemy? That doesn't even make sense to me. Tithe? give away 10% and I'll be more blessed? It doesn't even make, there needs to be some stuff in your life that rationally just doesn't make sense. And as you do that, you know who you are and you come to know who God is and you live a life of repentance and reorientation in your belief, you can know this God personally. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.